Stan Laurel once said, A friend once asked me what comedy was. That floored me. What is comedy? I don't know. Does anybody? Can you define it? All I know is that I learned how to get laughs, and that's all I know about. You have to learn what people will laugh at, then proceed accordingly. everyone and welcome back to the smooth rocking yacht that is the golden silent films podcast today our focus will be the 1927 silent short sailors beware while the film seafaring is anything but smooth we hope your podcast listening voyage is as smooth as a christopher cross album in the 80s before we sail away let's take a look at the social media docs of the golden silent films podcast as per usual, follow Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date info on this little podcast. And for everyone on Twitter, just follow at Golden Silence One, or just search for Golden Silence Cast, and we will be there. And these sites and screen names will be in the episode description in case you are interested in checking us out, and would love to have you on board. So follow us, subscribe us, like us. And we really super appreciate it. At both of those places, you're going to get behind-the-scenes pics and info, upcoming episode information, and other fun and cool silent movie-related material. Also, if you're listening to this program on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, do us a huge, huge favor, and please leave a review, a rating, or both. All those ratings and reviews help so much. Whether getting us more exposure in the vast podcast, vast sea of podcasts, or letting us know what we can do better, we appreciate the feedback and endeavor to bring you the best show possible. And if you really do like this show and you have friends who love film or love silent film, word of mouth is means everything. It, it's one thing to subscribe and like and all that stuff, but to show you like something enough to tell another friend of yours that you they should listen to it too, we would love it if you did that. It means a ton to us. So... With all that out of the way, we are back on the high seas for the sixth episode of season two and overall episode 20. For this episode, we are diving back into the world of the silent short. And like last time we did this, this time we'll also feature one megastar pairing of the silver screen. To do that, we'll be digging into the legendary pairing of Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy with a few fun excursions along the way. Speaking of excursions, let's start with a float into the past. And to do that, it's only fitting that we look at some maritime memories and see what boaty things were going on way back in 1927, the year Sailors Beware set sail in theaters everywhere. On July 17th, the Laurel and Hardy films, the Laurel and Hardy starring film Why Girls Love Sailors is released. This nautical short also featured frequent Laurel and Hardy co-star Anita Garvin, who we're going to learn a little bit about in this episode. On October 25th, the Italian ocean liner Principessa Mafalda capsizes off Porto Seguro, Brazil. At least 314 people are killed when this ship goes down. And finally, on December 27, 1927, Jerome Kern, Oscar Hammerstein, they come together to make the musical Showboat based on Edna Ferber's novel. It opens on Broadway on that date, and it is the beginning of the path of that show to becoming a classic of the American musical theater. As we say bon voyage to the pre-movie fun, 
it's time we take a look at the version we will be using for this discussion. And that version can be found on YouTube. There were a couple of versions to be had on the video sharing site, all with their own pros and cons. All the uploads I watched were pretty solid on most fronts. One had really good music accompanying it, which felt like it really belonged to the movie. Another had decent music, but it was an experience marred by slightly annoying sound effects which tended to take me out of the experience. Picture quality wise, all the versions were as good as can be hoped for under the circumstances. I must recommend you find folks out there check this short out. And I'm not going to hold it against you if you pause the podcast right now, spend 20 plus minutes watching the movie, and come back for a little fun infotainment afterwards. And before we fully commit to the thieving chicanery of Sailor's Beware, let's take a gander at some of the folks involved in this picture. And that can only mean one thing for all of you buoys and gulls out there. It is biography time, so by all means, let's start talking about some lives, some legends, some legacies. And when you're talking about Laurel and Hardy, there is no better place to start than with a little look at Stan the Man himself. Stan Laurel. Arthur Stanley Jefferson was born on June 16, 1890 in Ulverston, UK, and was the second of five children. Laurel's future movie success seemed to be destined from day one. Both of his parents were neck deep in acting, so it was only natural their son would continue it. His father, Arthur, was a theater owner, while his mother, Margaret, was an actress. In a biographical story on TCM.com, we learn about Laurel's roots in live theater. According to the article, naturally inclined toward a life in the theater, he returned to work with his parents at his father's Metropole Theater in Glasgow, Scotland, after completing his required studies at English schools in Bishop Auckland and Tynemouth. Laurel made his stage debut at the age of 16, much to the chagrin of his father who wanted Laurel to go into the management side of the business, and he was soon a member of a touring company. Not long after that, he would take his talents on the road in Fred Carno's traveling performing troupe. It was in this group of actors he would eventually be an understudy to none other than Charlie Chaplin. The two would share a cabin and later spend two years together touring North America. Turning back to that TCM.com story, we learn... In 1910, the company embarked on a U.S. tour, and young Laurel went with them, only to later go out on his own with several other actors, writing and performing his own original material that included a sketch called The Nutty Burglars. It was around this time that he changed his last name to Laurel, and teamed with his common-law wife at the time, Mae Dahlberg, a vaudevillian actress with whom he co-starred in his first short film, Nuts in May, in 1917. After that first film, Nuts in May, Universal offered him a contract. While it was a good start, it wouldn't last long as the contract was cancelled during a reorganization at the studio. Laurel and Dahlgren would co-star in a handful of films, but all was not well. Dahlgren, an Australian native, had a tendency to, I don't know, rub people the wrong way. The attitudes, real or perceived, and behind-the-scenes battles would come to a head in 1924. By 1924, Laurel had moved on from stage theatrics and had his sets, sights set on full-time film work. This move was cemented when he signed a contract with producer-director Joe Rock for 12 two-reel comedies. But remember the drama that seemed to follow Mae Dahlberg? 
This contract had one condition written into it that would, Rock believed, neutralize Dahlberg's shenanigans. The stipulation was that Dahlberg was not to appear in any of those 12 films. Rock was under the impression that her temperament was holding back Laurel's career. By 1925, she started insinuating herself in Laurel's work, prompting Rock to offer her a cash settlement and a one-way ticket back to her native Australia, and she took him up on the offer. Those 12 two-reel comedies that Laurel would film were Mandarin Mix-Up, Detained, Monsieur Don't Care, and West of Hot Dog in 1924, Somewhere in Wrong, Twins, Pie-Eyed, The Snowhawk, Navy Blue Days, The Sleuth, Dr. Pickle and Mr. Pride, and Half a Man in 1925. When his deal with Rock came to an end, Laurel headed off to ply his trade at popular and powerful Hal Roach Studios. Early on, Laurel's duties for Hal Roach Studios were primarily as a writer and director of films like Yes, Yes, Nan yes, yes Nanette in 1925, which incidentally starred his future comedy companion Oliver Hardy. His road to comedy stardom would begin when Hardy suffered a minor accident. This caused Laurel to come off the bench and help out with acting duties as a temporary member of Roach Studios' comedy all-star players. So, at this point, we're going to take a pause on the story of Stan and turn our focus over to the other half of the burgeoning comedy tag team, Oliver. So, Oliver Norval Hardy was born in Harlem, Georgia on January 18, 1892. Even though his father wanted him to attend the University of Georgia Law School, Hardy had entertainment ambitions, just not the ones you might expect. The young man grew up dreaming of a singing career. And these plans and ambitions would change a bit when he took a job at a movie theater. Around 1910, when he took that theater job, he soon fell in love with film. According to his obituary from the August 8, 1957 Los Angeles Times, they write, He was in stock for four years and toured the South with his own singing act. He happened to be in Jacksonville, Florida in 1913 when a movie company was there. They needed a fat comedian, and that was that. That's a concise, if funny or offensive way to describe this era of Hardy's early career. And not the only reference to Hardy's weight in his obituary, unfortunately. But let's dig in a little deeper. In an effort to pursue work on the big screen, Hardy would relocate to Jacksonville, Florida in 1913. He got his start in comedic shorts with the Lubin Company. His on-screen debut came in the 1914 short, Outwitting Dad. He would work regularly in shorts from 1914 to 1925. This time period included a, a few series of comedy shorts like the Pokes and Jab series and the Plump and Runt series, to name a few. The early 20s would see him working as an actor and co-director of some shorts for writer and producer Larry Semon. Now that the two leads of this movie have been introduced, let's tie their stories up in a nice silent little bow. So going back to where we left off with Stan Laurel, Oliver Hardy had just suffered a minor injury causing Laurel to step in front of the camera for Hal Roach Studios. As Laurel excelled in this unexpected limelight, Hardy was doing the same, and it was only a matter of time until they were sharing screen time. As 1926 dawned, the two funny men would soon start sharing screen time and making history for Hal Roach Studios. Their first team up came, up, came in the short 45 minutes from Hollywood in 1926. That was followed up with Duck Soup in 1927 and Slipping Wives also in 1927. 
Their status as co-workers soon turned into a great friendship. The bigwigs at the studio could see there was something special between the two actors. The studio's supervising director, Leo McCary, felt there was money to be made in teaming the two up in an official on-screen capacity. It was under the guidance of McCary that Laurel and Hardy began putting together their inimitable style. This can be seen in shorts like 1927's Sugar Daddies and With Love and Hisses. Their act and style came together relatively fast, though their trademark fashion of ties and bowler hats did not come about until their eighth film, Do Detectives Think, in 1927. And if you asked McCary and Roach, the two, of the, the two would both later deem 1927's Putting Pants on Philip as the first official Laurel and Hardy film. The two certainly had a connection. Turning back to the LA Times' Oliver Hardy obit, it reads, In their pictures, Laurel called him Ollie, but away from the cameras and to everyone, the blimp-like Hardy was always Babe. Down through the years, Laurel and Hardy had always been close friends, being almost psychic in their understanding of each other. Now, putting aside the fact that the newspaper called the dead comedian blimp-like, this really shows the deep bond the two men shared. And as this back and forth and team chemistry was a hit with moviegoers, their style of humor and physical comedy connected with audiences everywhere. While they were portrayed as a perfect household to the public, though, the real world was fairly different. According to writer Patrick Sauer in his Smithsonian Magazine article entitled, Please Extend a Laurel and Hardy Handshake to the New Film Stan and Ollie, the relationship could be quite strained at times. Sauer writes, on screen, Laurel and Hardy fit together perfectly, physically, emotionally, temperamentally, and comedically. In real life, however, they weren't all that close and didn't socialize together that often. Hardy saw himself as an act for hire, a professional who would show up and do the work. But when the shoot was done, he was off to carouse with his drinking buddies, playing cards and betting the ponies. Laurel was a workaholic, the film world his entire life. At day's end, Laurel would be in the editing room or with the writers or by himself working on the plots for two movies down the line. Also in an interview with Smithsonian Magazine, Cliff Nesterhoff, author of The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy, wrote, By virtue of comedy team alchemy, the straight man is usually a jerk, or at least always stern, said Nesterhoff. Hardy was the stern one, but only long enough to give the camera a really funny look. Then he goes back to being sweet. The dynamic between Laurel and Hardy is lovable, and they have a certain charm that no other comics of the era had. I'd even say more so than Charlie Chaplin. Now, By the end of the year, the silent comedy team had caught on so well with the public that there was no turning back. Yet no one except the nurturing roach would have allowed them the time and leeway they needed for their creative growing pains to play out. A rarity among his contemporaries, Roach understood comedy and gave his people the freedom to get things just right, saving the pair from the kind of major studio meddling that so blunted the genius of Buster Keaton at the height of his genius. As the late 20s came, so did, the sound, so did sound in movies, and the act of Stan and Ollie would survive and thrive in this new era of cinema. Let's hear a bit more from author Cliff Nesterhoff as he breaks down the transition to sound for the beloved Funnyman. He writes, Laurel and Hardy successfully straddled the silent to talky film period in a way that a lot of their contemporaries didn't. Their essentially charming, likable characters remain intact when they first spoke on screen. 
Their talkies are so much better than their silence, which isn't the case for Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, or Harold Lloyd. No, not everyone was on the sound is best bandwagon. In fact, Stan Laurel weighs in on his pre and post sound work. Laurel explains, Personally, I think the silent films were more effective for Laurel and Hardy, but the sound was of great value in enhancing the effects. Dialogue eliminated a lot of action and sight gags. I always feel that actions speak louder than words. Patrick Sauer recounts the relationship between the two actors and Hal Roach. Roach was the best thing that ever happened to Laurel and Hardy, and the worst. Roach knew exactly what they needed to make great films, which included artistic freedom and the budget to do so. But he was, hard -no he was a hard-nosed businessman who never gave the talent what they truly deserved, ownership of their work, a la Chaplin. And to say how Roach was a hard-nosed businessman, that's a bit of an understatement. There wasn't much he would pass on if it could make him a buck. Since the duo were now enjoying crazy success in the sound world, Roach wasn't content to limit that gravy train to English-speaking audiences. Patrick Sauer writes, While they were well compensated for their success, the flat wage Roach paid them meant that the duo wouldn't enjoy the lucrative stream of global residuals and they played all over. Roach would have Laurel and Hardy reshoot scenes in German, French, Italian, and especially Spanish to capture those film markets. It was an exhausting, costly process requiring tutors for each man, lines translated phonetically on blackboards just out of camera range, and entirely new supporting casts fluent in their respective foreign languages. But it made the duo worldwide stars. Hardy had an easier time with Spanish enunciation, but there was a lot of comic mumbling. Roach also shrewdly staggered their contracts so they would expire six months apart, keeping them from negotiating as a team. Now, some of the first cracks in the Stan Ollie Roach partnership would emerge during the filming of the holiday favorite Babes in Toyland in 1934. While today many folks like myself consider this a holiday tradition movie, it came at a cost. Roach was incredibly unhappy with how filming was progressing and was not at all happy with Laurel's onset behavior. Stan Laurel was not a happy camper with the plot and after the two argued a bit, the funny man was allowed to make the film his way. This bad experience led to Roach wanting to never work with Laurel again. Cooler heads would prevail and the two would work together for another six years, though it wasn't always smooth. Hoping for greener pastures elsewhere, the two would split from Hal Roach and sign with 20th Century Fox in 1941, followed by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer in 1942. This move would appear to be a bit of a downgrade on the artistic freedom front, seemingly. However, now they were just hired actors, not initially allowed to contribute to scripts or improvise, which they had proved to be masters at. As their films rose in popularity, the studios did loosen their leashes and allowed more creative input. The duo would star in eight features as 1944 came to a close. Though these films weren't career highlight work, they were still super successful at the box office. Budgeted between $300,000 and $450,000 each, they earned millions at the box office for Fox and MGM. The final feature film the two would team up for was A Tall K in 1951. Problems, production, and health-wise made filming this feature a rough time for both men. During filming, Hardy began to lose weight and developed an irregular heartbeat, while Laurel experienced a painful prostate complications. 
Laurel's issues with the production were borne out in the reviews. It did not do well and proved a bummer of a way for such a successful film partnership to come to an end. By the later years of their career, though, things had taken a turn. Patrick Sauer writes, By 1953, Laurel and Hardy's career were an actual mess. Movie audiences had forsaken them in favor of the louder antics of Abbott and Costello and Martin and Lewis. Hardy's love of gambling and alimony payments to his ex-wives put him in constant need of money. Divorce haunted both men. Laurel had three ex-wives, one of whom he divorced twice. Both Laurel and Hardy found happiness later in life with Ida Raphael and Virginia Jones, respectively. In 1956, Oliver Hardy lost over 100 pounds at his doctor's behest in an effort to live a healthier life. Despite these change, this change in lifestyle, Hardy would suffer several strokes which reduced mobility and speech. With all these health issues, it turns out Hardy was not so financially healthy either. By this point, he had almost nothing left and was forced to sell his house in order to pay for medical expenses. He died of a stroke on August 7, 1957. Hardy was laid to rest at Pierce Brothers Valhalla Memorial Park in North Hollywood. For the remaining eight years of his life, Stan Laurel refused to perform. Despite performing, he was recognized by his peers for his legendary contributions to film comedy by receiving a special Academy Award in 1960. Due to poor health, Laurel was unable to attend, and actor Danny Kaye accepted on his behalf. He would stick fast to his self-imposed staying off-screen edict, even declining a cameo in Stanley Kramer's 1963 film, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Laurel would die on February 23, 1965, at the age of 74, four days after suffering a heart attack. He was interred at Forest Lawn Hollywood Hills Cemetery. Now, with the lives of our two stars on board and accounted for, let's take a little look at a little bit of controversy and mystery nestled in this fun little short. This next bit is a little mix of biography and whodunit. Now, this is an interesting biographical road to go down. This is a case of what makes the world of silent films fascinating and frustrating and shows you why things are so hard to record and document and research. Times like this make specific life info tough to accurately pin down. I mean, in our current world of the cinematic, it takes just, I don't know, a single trip to imdb.com to experience information overload, just looking at the cast and crew of a modern movie. I mean, you can find out everything about every single star, supporting actor, actress, even the extras. The final credits of a movie last 20 minutes telling you all 1,746 folks who toiled in the various CGI departments. Everything is recorded forever. The names are there, and they all relate back to a human being who did a thing. Theoretically black and white, cut and dry. But the time of the silent film credits that left things a little bit murkier. And shorts always exacerbated the problem. Features, especially earlier ones, could have a tendency to play fast and loose with credits. Shorts took it a step further and would often give you nothing at all. Maybe a director and a star or two. Anything beyond that is bonus territory. And since times were what they were, there wasn't much in the record keeping to answer these credit mysteries. These films weren't made to stand the test of time. They were there to make a buck and move on to the next one. Even in general life, records weren't made to stand the test of time. 
This is something we here at the Golden Silent Films podcast have some experience with. I mean, we've seen people with multiple birthdays, multiple spellings and names, and a lot of other non-existent life information. I mean, this fog really makes research a real pain. So all that buildup is to say, I have no clue who is playing the character of Baby Roger in Sailor's Beware. And I, but I'm going to give you fine listeners two possible suspects and let you decide who played Baby Roger. The first potential man-baby is a famous, well-known actor, and the other is lesser known with scant biographical details. Now, the first candidate is one I was super excited to see. Everywhere I looked, Baby Roger was said to have been played by Harry Earls. For a man of his stature in the 20s and on, he certainly has a badass filmography. Just a handful of his credits include The Unholy Three with Lon Chaney, Todd Browning's Freaks, and my favorite movie of all time, The Wizard of Oz, where he was a member of the Lollipop Guild. Now that's a top-notch killer list, right? So Kurt Schneider was born on April 3rd, 1902 in Stolpen, Germany. He would come to the States with his sister Frida. Once they arrived, they worked for a man named Earls, at which time they adopted his last name. In the early 1920s, their sister Hilda joined them, and a few years after that, their sister Ellie arrived. The four worked in the movies while simultaneously working for Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus. In fact, Harry would act in several films with Laurel and Hardy, even. Eventually, they would all take the last name Dahl and be the Dahl family, touring as a circus act. Since he was in some of my all-time favorite movies, I was pretty stoked to take a deep dive into his fascinating life. That is... Until I find out it might not have even been him to begin with. This is the transition into potential Baby Roger number two. In digging around for what little info existed on Sailor's Beware, I consistently found Harry Earl's name associated with this Laurel and Hardy short. Until I found a new name, that is. Like I said, I was putzing around and researching when I came across a website called the Laurel and Hardy blog. Now this is a really cool, really deep, informative website that lots of cool information to be gleaned. And you can find it at www.laurel-and-hardy-blog.com. As I read about Sailor's Beware, a new man-baby was brought to my attention. That man would be Gustav Schaffrath. That particular blog post would lead me to www.lordheath.com, which is the home of a website called Another Fine Mess, which covers reviews film of films made by Hal Roach Studios, as well as the individual films of Stan Laurel, Oliver Hardy, Charlie Chase, and the R-Gang Kids. This would serve as my introduction to our mystery man, Gustav. This also made it pretty clear how Earls and Shafrath could be switched as the years went by. The two would share pretty similar beginnings, appearances, and cinematic endeavors to a certain extent. According to the biographical bit on another fine mess website, Schaffrath was born in Germany in roughly 1904-1905. His Ellis Island paperwork from March of 1923 say him, a friend, and two family members were heading to America for work in the circus. In this article, it was listed as, uh, as the A.S. Barnes Circus in Dallas, Texas. Also, the diminutive actor could be found in the 1930 Los Angeles, California census, where his occupation is listed as circus performer. According to another fine mess, in April 1927 LA Times article about Sailors Beware, it reads, Oliver Hardy, contract featured players Will Stanton, Frank Brownlee, Anita Garvin, Mae Wallace, and Gustav Schaffrath Midget, 
Sailors Beware was filmed April 4th through 18th, 1927. Another post I read from the website nitrateville.com also lists the standard casting directories from 1927-28, saying the part was played by Gus Schifracht, a midget. While the name was misspelled, it's pretty clear they were talking about Gustav. Unfortunately, that's about the end of Gustav Schafrath biographical info that I could muster up. His lack of background info only feeds into the overarching narrative that Harry Earls was Baby Roger. But I find myself on the side of Gustav being the man-baby in question. But it's easy to see how such confusion can exist. Harry came into the States from Stolpen, Germany in 1915. Gustav came from Germany in 1923. Both worked in circus sideshows, both appeared with Laurel and Hardy, and both played adult babies. Harry in 1925's The Unholy Three, and Gustav in 1927's Sailors Beware. Not quite linking Kennedy levels of weird connections, but interesting nonetheless. But now, let's ride, ride like the wind to be free again of the pre-movie info dump and enter the next phase of this podcast. The movie breakdown. That would mean Hal Roach presents Sailors Beware with Stan Laurel, Oliver Hardy, Anita Garvin, Edna Marion, directed by Fred L. Gill, photographed by Floyd Jackman, edited by Richard Courier, gowns by Lamb Bear, supervising director by Rif Richard F. Richard Jones, titles by H. M. Walker. The first thing we see is a newspaper headline touting Millionaires flocking to Monte Carlo for races. Reading a little more into the article, we found out that the steamship Miramar sails today with the greatest collection of millionaires ever known to steamship travel. In fact, enough money is represented on the Miramar to pay the national debt. Enough jewels to make a queen jealous. That is followed by a montage of the well-to-do boarding the Miramar. Various shots of travelers, well-wishers, bon voyaging and stewards blowing various horns and such. Well, my closest experience to being on a cruise was my parents went on one back in the day. I doubt they had this kind of fanfare surrounding their getting on board, but they did get to meet L.A. Dodger legend and hero of mine, Or Hershizer, who was on the day show that happened to be filming at one of the stops of their cruise. So that's pretty cool. But anyhow, next in the film we are introduced to Purser Kreider, played by Oliver Hardy. In case you were curious, an the purser is an officer on a ship who keeps the accounts, especially the head steward on a passenger vessel. And the film tells us a bit about Purser Kreider's customer service as said head steward. We're told Purser Kreider had only two things on his mind, blondes and brunettes. This is facts. As we see Kreider in action, he's super nice and helpful to the cute ladies boarding the ship, but mean and belligerent to the men. Now we're introduced to Baroness Bear, who is taking her husband Baron Bear home to sober up. The Baroness is played by Lupe Velez in what was only her second movie role. The drunk Baron stumbles out of his car, birdcage in hand, amid the throng of photographers and paparazzi. And unfortunately for the bird, he falls over with a loud crash. Our introduction period continues as we see a taxi speed around the corner. It's driven by Chester Chaste, whom we are told bought a grandstand seat to see the world come to an end. Chased is played by Stan Laurel. He is not alone in his cab. He is driving Madame Ritz, international crook whose specialty was robbing steamship passengers. 
Now that is a special set of skills. In fact, a very particular set of skills. Skills they have, they have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make them a nightmare for people like that. She's riding, cigarette in hand, with her baby sitting beside her. But the movie tells us all is not what it seems. Madame Ritz's husband was a midget. He wore baby clothes to help his wife's career. This car ride is our first glimpse of Anita Garvin playing Madame Ritz and Gustav Schaffrath, I think, playing her baby husband Roger. I must say, he pulls off the baby look pretty darn well. If you didn't know he was an adult, you might not even notice. The baby getup really pulls the whole look together. And while we have paused on the film for a second, let's take a moment to look at the life of Madame Ritz herself, Anita Garvin. Anna Frances Garvin was born on February 11, 1906 in New York City, the middle child of three children. Almost from birth, she had her sights set on Hollywood stardom. In 1918, at only 12 years of age, she would apply for a job as a bathing beauty in one of Max Sennett's New York stage shows. When a casting agent asked her age, Garvin was able to sugarcoat her answer and convince the agent she was near 16. Whatever she said worked, she got the job. The next year, she joined the famous Ziegfeld Follies and later moving on to other stage shows and other high-profile gigs into the 20s. As the two ride, she explains the plan to her husband. Roger, she says, it's going to be easy pickings for us on the Miramar. After chatting about her plan, she finishes her cigarette as Chester stops at the boat entrance. She tries to flick the butt out the car window, but doesn't quite get it out, so it starts to smolder a bit as he pulls up shipside, and the two drivees get out to board the ship, Ritz holding her hubby like a baby. Purser Kreider awaits her as she dumps the baby off to him. The baby starts messing with Kreider. An unamused Chester pitches their suitcase out the front of the cab. Chester still has business to conduct and hands Ritz the bill for the ride. She tells him to wait and she'll be right back with the money. A patient Chester sits down to await the return of Madame Ritz. Unfortunately, she has no intention of returning and just boards the boat. But if they had paid the fare now, that would be the end of it. Chester Chase will not look for them. He will not pursue them. But if they don't, Chester will look for them. He will find them, and he will kill them. Well, now that I think about it, he won't kill anyone. But there will be payback, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Behind her in line boarding is a drunken birdcage-holding barren bear. As they go up the steps, the t bird's tweeting annoys Ritz so much, she turns and pushes him down the stairs and continues her trek on board. Luckily, he falls right into Baby Roger's rolling baby basket, where he is rolled onto the cruise ship. Meanwhile, Chester is sitting patiently awaiting his cash when a cop strolls by and tells him he has to move his car. He can't keep it parked there. Chester tells the cop where he is waiting for someone. The cop, however, is having none of his shenanigans. In fact, Chester gets popped in the head with a baton. So the cabbie finally relents and drives off to wait at another point along the dock right beside the ship. At this point, there are two things Chester doesn't know about his car. First, he is parked where the cars of the rich folk are lifted onto the ship to go with their owners. And second, that smoldering cigarette from earlier has turned into an all-out fire in the back of the cab. Chester notices one of these events, but not the other. He jumps out of the car, extinguisher in hand, and hops into the back seat to battle the flames. While he's preoccupied with the fire, the car is hooked up and lifted up onto the ship. Chester exits the car, only to find out he is now on the open sea. 
He is shocked, to say the least, and tells some nearby deckhands that he has been kidnapped. Upon being told this, the crew member tells him to take any comments and concerns to the purser. And that is exactly what Chester Chase does. He sternly makes his way to Purser Kreider, who happens to be hitting on a rich brunette. Unfortunately for the purser, Chester's protestations distract him from the flirting and the lady leaves. Yet Chase persists. He demands satisfaction. In fact, he demands the ship be turned around at this moment and he be put back ashore. Purser Kreider does what anyone would do. He passes the problem up the chain of command and tells Chester to take it up with the ship's captain. This is our first introduction to Captain Bull, the toughest skipper on the seven seas. And playing this gruff Captain Bull is Frank Brownlee. Brownlee was born on October 11, 1874 in Dallas, Texas. His career was a solid and long-lasting one. He would appear in more than 100 films between 1911 and 1943. He died on February 10, 1948 in Los Angeles, California. So Chester is not intimidated in the least by Captain Bull, at least in the beginning. He gets all in the captain's face telling him everything that needs to be done to remedy the situation in his favor. All of Chester's sound and fury, though, does little. Cool as a cucumber, Captain Bull asks, where's your ticket? Chester replies, I ain't got any and I don't want any. Bull fires back, you're a stowaway. And the stowaways I don't murder, I put to work. This breaks down Chester and life flashes before his eyes and he starts crying and pleading for help, but the captain wants none of it. Get this landlubber a steward's outfit, the captain yells. This part is a masterclass of Stan Laurel's comedic chops. The emotions and looks he was able to convey are facially are amazing. Jim Carrey is a comparable person from modern days that could contort and really show so much with their face. It's stuff like this that really endears Laurel to an audience. In fact, in a 1978 interview with the LA Times, Anita Garvin talked about this magic of Stan Laurel. She related to the paper, One thing about Stan, with apologies to a lot of directors, they thought they were directing him. They thought they were directing the picture. But Stan was the one. He was very clear about it. He was very clever about it. The director was never cognizant of the fact that he was not doing all the directing. Stan's mind was going all the time, always thinking of gags and things to do. The script didn't mean a thing. So, first the deckhand pulls Chester's coat off. He fights them and instead grabs Bull's captain's hat and throws it down. This really gets to Bull. Throw him overboard, and the deck dudes prepare to do just that. Whoa, 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 says Chester, his mind quickly changing. I've changed my mind, I'll work. He pleads as the deckhands lift him up. Kreider goes and gets a uniform off of another crew member. He takes it over and tosses it to Chester. Before he can go scrubbing the deck or anything, Bull points out an ominous war Bull makes an ominous warning. If you let him loaf, I'll put you all in irons, he yells. Kreider and Chester head off to get working. As they pass through the deck and the groups of rich folk, we get some good physical slapstick comedy. Some really fun stuff as the passengers work out. There's some great interplay here with Laurel and Hardy as they get involved with the jump rope session and accidentally toss a medicine ball overboard. Some really fun, cool stuff that is better to watch than have me explain to you. Now that we're set up with Chester's on-boat situation, it's time to turn back to our villains of this picture, Madame Ritz and Baby Roger. 
This part of the movie was one of my favorite visuals of the whole thing. Madame Ritz and Roger are discussing their thieving plans for the evening, and Roger is pacing back and forth, smoking a big cigar. This just cracked me up. A quote-unquote baby looking surly and smoking a cigar will never get old for me. Whether it's Gustav here, or baby Herman in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, it kills me every time. There's just something about a smoking baby that makes me laugh every single time. Anywho, back to their planning session. Ritz is getting all dolled up to enter a shipboard bridge card game. When she's all ready, she heads out while baby Roger smokes it up. So, let's take this moment uh, to float back a little bit into the life of Anita Garvin. When we left off, she was making a name for herself on the stage heading into the, 1920, into the roaring 1920s. In Hollywood, Garvin began appearing in Christie Film Company comedies. Charles Lamont brought her over to work for Educational Pictures. Then in 1926, she was hired by Hal Roach Studios. This would be a great move for her, and over the next several years, she appeared in many silent shorts with Charlie Chase and Laurel and Hardy. She was also cast occasionally in supporting roles and features. Garvin continued to impress Roach with her talents and on-screen presence, so much so that he later ranked her as one of his finest actresses. Garvin would eventually appear in 11 films with the duo of Laurel and Hardy. Out in the hallway, the still inebriated Baron Bear is staggering through the hallway, unsure of which room is his. He enters one where he is met by a big, burly, angry husband who tosses him out the door. Chester is delivering some drinks when he happens upon the situation. He doesn't know... He doesn't know that that was the wrong room and keeps picking the Baron up and sending him back into the room only to be thrown out again and again. Eventually, Chester carries himself, him in himself, only for both men to be thrown out. This was some good, silly fun with drunks. Now, we are back with Kreider, who is trying to be all Rico Suave with the ladies, only to fail miserably. This, I think, is our first big look at the ship's big ballroom party area. We'll be back here a few times as the movie continues. Remember that delivery of drinks Chester was making? That stuff was going to the Ritz and Roger room. When he sees the baby in the room, he stays to play with the baby. Roger messes with Chester endlessly. First, he gets him with the springy thing in a can gag. Then Roger pulls out some dice. Chester thinks this is innocent enough until baby Roger starts throwing down cash to bet on the dice. Chester doesn't quite know what to think, but goes along with it. After some losing, Chester finally wins. Or does he? One of the dice magically turns on its own, causing Roger to win. Roger takes all the cash and stuffs it into his baby suit. Give me back my money. It was only in fun, Chester pleads. Ba baby Roger refuses to comply, which causes Chester to start crying again. In his emotional fit, the ship-locked cabbie picks up the pair of dice and sees they're super sketchy. When he realizes he's been had, he yells at baby Roger before chasing him around the cabin. It's actually a pretty impressive chase for being in such tight quarters. They were able to get a pretty madcap, cha madcap chase in with just two small beds as obstacles. As the chase goes on, Madame Ritz returns to the room to find Chester after the baby. She calls for purser Kreider and tells him that brute tried to hurt my angel. Instead of helping, he tries to put the moves on the, in his mind, single mother. Chester uses his distraction to sneak out of the room. Baby Roger, not wanting his wife hit on, gives Kreider a swift kick in the shins, all under the guise of wacky baby shenanigans. 
Soon after, Kreider leaves, and the conniving couple count the cash little Raj won from Chester and laugh. What was it like working with this hilarious duo? In an interview with David Wyatt in 1990, uh, Garvin described the, what the two were like on set. The actors told Wyatt, They were clean and they were funny. They didn't have to use any bad language or anything. They were funny. Anyone can be funny saying four-letter words, I guess, but they were funny men, especially Stan. After he'd shot a scene, Babe would just like to sit in his chair and strum his ukulele and sing. Whereas Stan would be thinking, thinking, what do I do next? What's funny? That was Stan. Next up for Chester is some shenanigans in the fancy onboard pool. Eventually, a whole fracas occurs, and before long, all the rich folks in the pool area have been tossed or fallen in the pool, and a huge commotion has ensued. Being the only one not ending up in the water, Chester coolly leaves the pool. He passes by Kreider, who, whom he tells, Lady in the pool wants you, sir, and an excited Kreider heads on in. Unbeknownst to Kreider, the soaking folks inside are waiting for Chester to come back. When Kreider steps in, they all douse him in water. We are back in that ballroom area with a big staircase. Chester runs into Madame Ritz, who has baby Roger in his stroller. She demands Chester take her baby downstairs. Not one to be too helpful to her, he takes the stroller and pushes it down the steps. Little Roger bounces his way down the steps before crashing into a closed door. Now this was pretty funny stuff. I wasn't expecting him to just push it down, but he did and it was great. The way they filmed this was really cool too and it gave, this, gave a sense of him actually rolling down the steps. And the crash into the door was great and had me laughing and replaying it over and over. Not that the Golden Silent Films podcast advocates pushing strollers down steps, but we'll allow it from time to time. Madame Ritz didn't find it as funny as I did and punches Chester in the face before storming off. She rolls baby Roger over to her bridge game and this is where we see the sneaky plot of the criminal duo. She parks Roger's stroller behind the other bridge players so he can tip her off to their card hands. Chester wanders over to see what they are doing. He steps in and comedically tries to even the odds. He is looking at Madame Ritz's cards and telling the other ladies when and what to play. Eventually, he just starts playing the other lady's cards for her, defeating Madame Ritz. Now, as the movie starts to wind down, let's wind down the life and career of Anita Garvin. As the sound era made its way to movie houses around the world, Garvin would continue working in comedies produced at a number of studios, including Warner Brothers, Vitaphone, RKO Radio Pictures, and Columbia Pictures. She continued to work as well in Laurel and Hardy shorts with Hal Roach, Though not big role, she appeared on screen in nine films through the 30s and 40s. After losing the card game, Ritz gets up and decks Chester again. With that plot foiled, baby Roger heads off on plan B. In this plan, he walks around with his teddy bear, straight up stealing people's jewelry and stuffing it in the bear. As baby Roger walks around, Chester runs into him. Listen, give me back my five dollars, he yells at the baby. Roger is not giving in, so Chester takes his teddy bear. About this time, ladies on the ship are realizing they've all been robbed. This causes a fear on the ship and an angry mob gathers at the big steps. Kreider tries to calm them down. Back with Chester and Roger, things are also reaching a climax. Chester threatens to throw the teddy bear down the chute incinerator thing unless baby Roger gives back his five bucks. But Chester doesn't know what's in the bear. Not satisfied with little Rog's answers, he chucks it down the chute. Knowing what's in it, Baby Rogers backs up for a running start and dives down the chute in pursuit. How they filmed this was also pretty funny. 
The way it looked with a fake Baby Roger being tossed in cracked me up. Now Baby Roger lands in a huge pile of soot and dirt. Captain Bull wanders, wanders by and looks in the chute just as a huge plume of soot poof, poofs out and engulfs him. As he clears his eyes, a deckhand brings a soot-covered Baby Roger teddy bear in hand. Roger tells the captain, Big man's threw me down big hole. Chester tries to plead his case, but the captain won't listen to any of it. In fact, Bull yells at Chester, Give that baby a bath, then report to me to have your neck wrung. Next up, we get a battle between Chester and Roger at, at a bathtub. Roger wants none of it, but Chester is doing what he's told. After some back and forth brawling, Chester gets Roger into the tub. With the baby soaking, Chester sees the teddy bear on the floor. It is broken open, and all the jewels have spilled out. He asks baby Roger about the gems. Keep your trap shut and I'll split it with you, Roger tries to bargain. Chester replies, not on your life. I'm an honest taxi driver. Now this bit in the tub was another fun set of physical comedy by Laurel. It got me wondering how these types of scenes would even come together. And luckily for us, Laurel had something to say on that very topic. The comedian broke it down thusly. We did have a script, but it didn't consist of the routines and the gags. It outlined the basic story idea and just a plan for us to follow. But when it came to each scene, me and the gag men would work out ideas. And with that, Chester picks up baby Roger out of the tub, grabs the bear, and heads out to the stairs in the main ballroom. He is followed by Purser Kreider. Chester hands the teddy bear over to Kreider and explains the whole situation. One of the rich folk in the crowd says, I'm going to take up a collection for the hero. In all the commotion, Madame Ritz tries to sneak out, but is corralled by ship crew members. Before heading off himself, Chester gives Kreider a good swift kick in the butt and runs off. Kreider turns around to see Roger behind him and thinks he did the butt kicking, and the two start into the fisticuffs. Unfortunately for Kreider, it ends poorly, and he gets KO'd by baby Roger. As we leave, we see Chester giving it to Captain Bull and tossing his hat and leaving. The End now, I really enjoyed this flick. It's been a while since I've seen anything Laurel and Hardy related, and now I'm kicking myself for holding out so long. I know and understand this isn't classic Laurel and Hardy, but it certainly left me wanting more. There is a world of the duo's comedy out there, and I look forward to checking it all out. I was a big fan of Stan's Chester Chase. He was funny, surly, and stubborn. He wasn't afraid to mess with someone who was also doing so and also doing something super goofy, which I appreciated. One of my favorite scenes with old Stansky was towards the end during the bridge game. The way he played that was awesome. How he just slowly inserted himself into the game and how it was so subtle and soon he was in control of the whole game. Super well done and made me laugh and it was a scene I rewatched a handful of times. Now while we're talking about Stan's performance in this movie, let's turn to the Laurel and Hardy blog for a look at Laurel's performance. In an article breaking down Sailor's Beware, the article reads, Stan's performance in general is still quite fast-paced, not the slowed-down, dim-witted Stanley character yet. He is still quite belligerent towards anybody who crosses him and is quick to get in heated debates with people in authority, which is at odds with the Stanley that we know and love. But even so, his performance is very enjoyable. In the September 24, 1927 edition of Moving Picture World, they put out a little review of the picture. The magazine writes, Sailors beware, path. Two reels, with Anita Garvin in the leading feminine role, Stan Laurel is the star of this Hal Roach comedy, which, which rates as a good slapstick offering. 
Stan is cast as a boob taxi driver whose car with him in it is accidentally hoisted on a transoceanic steamship. He is forced to work his passage as a steward and success succeeds in unmasking a pair of jewel thieves. A novel touch shows the woman played by Miss Garvin, aided by her husband portrayed by a midget. The midget dresses as a baby in order to aid her in disarm suspicion, but this scheme goes bluey. There is a lot of chase stuff and farce comedy mix-ups. Oliver Hardy, Frank Brownlee, Lupe Velez, and Viola Richard are included in the cast. Now, there was a bit of a special moment in this film. The Laurel and Hardy blog shed some light on one of the more historical moments this film contained, especially in regards to Oliver Hardy. The article reads, Perhaps most, nor no perhaps most noteworthy from a historical perspective is that the film is the first short starring both Stan and Babe together, in which Babe performs what would become a trademark look directly into the camera to connect with the viewing audience in order to get across his usually despairing feelings. Whilst it's true to say that this is not the first time Ollie performed this on screen, he used it earlier in his career at the likes of the Vim and also Lubin Studios, but he was certainly now perfecting his craft here. Uh, with all the talk out of the movie out of the way, and we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is a segment where we join our favorite cinematic stars on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, and celebrity spectacle converge in Where Are They Now? Your guide to paying your respects to the film legends that have entertained us so much. For a look at the afterlife for this episode, we will be looking at the lady we have been digging into throughout this flick. That would be Anita Garvin. Garvin died on July 7, 1994 at the age of 88. Her last years would be spent at the Motion Picture Country House and Hospital in Woodland Hills, California. She was survived by her two children and by seven grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren. If you are interested in seeing where she lays today, look no further than Section E of the San Fernando Mission Cemetery in Mission Hills, California. The San Fernando Mission Cemetery is a Roman Catholic cemetery located at 11160 Strandwood Avenue in the Mission Hills community of the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. In addition to Anita Garvin, this cemetery houses the graves of William Frawley of Isle of Lucy fame, Peter Graves' grave, Richie Valens, and the legendary Bob Hope. Not bad company at all to be spending an eternity with. Now, as this podcasting ship floats back into dock and we disembark, we want to thank you for taking this little comedy cruise together with us. Did you enjoy our first foray into the oeuvre of Laurel and Hardy? What are some Laurel and Hardy flicks we should check out next? And how many of you out there think babies smoking cigars is just the cutest thing you've ever seen? Please let me know I'm not the only one. Let us know all that and more at the various social media docs of the Golden Silent Films podcast. And if you have forgotten, we are on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you thought about this episode. What movies, past or present, do you want us to dive into next? Our world of silence is constantly expanding, and we need your input to plot out our future viewings. You can do all that at Golden Silence Cast on Instagram and at Golden Silence One, that's Golden Silence and the number one, on Twitter. 
And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, subscribe, rate, review. It helps us like crazy here, and we love hearing your thoughts. We super, super appreciate all of your awesome support and seeing how much you folks out there are listening only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes for you. And I'll tell you right now, we have some doozies lined up coming down the pipeline, and we are so excited to get them out for you. And with all that being said, thank you to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine listening. And don't ever forget, the silence are golden, and the talkies, they're just a fad.